All right. Take your Bible with me and turn with me to the gospel or the book of Acts in the New Testament. The book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, let's say it together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. These are the four history books, although there's history throughout all of the books of the New Testament for the most part. These are the major history books. And the book of Acts is an important book because it talks about the growth of the church from Jerusalem all the way to the largest city of the, of the world at that time in the Roman Empire, the city of Rome itself. And so we want you to take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 11. Leave it there for just a second. And I want to begin by asking you a question. And the question is, how do you know when you're talking to someone and you're discussing religion with them, how do you know <coughs> that what they're saying to you is true or false? How do you know? Now, I'm not talking about the small stuff. I'm not talking about you standing there or sitting there discussing with someone from another denomination how we baptize and how the church is to be governed and, and little things like that. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff at all, but I am talking about the big stuff. I'm talking about the big stuff. I'm talking about the person of Christ. I'm talking about the resurrection of Christ. I'm talking about the Bible being the Word of God. How do you know when someone is spouting off false religion? Well, an easy way to tell is if they are bashing yours. If the Bible is the Word of God and they're bashing the Bible as the Word of God, that's a false religion, right? It's a false teaching. If Jesus rose from the, from the dead and they're bashing the resurrection of Christ, then you know that you're dealing with false religion, false teaching. Those are the easy, that's one of the easiest ways in the world to tell. So my next question that I want to follow that up with is this. So if someone were to come up to you and say to you, and I'm going to quote, this is, my, this is the quote, that the information in Acts can only be looked upon as intentional deviations from historical truth in the interest of the special tendency which they possess, how would you answer that question? Now, I'll shorten it just for a moment, okay? If someone were to be discussing religion with you, and they said to you, that the information in the book of Acts can only be looked upon as intentional deviations from historical truth. That the person who wrote the book of Acts is intentionally distorting the truth. Is intentionally telling you the wrong things for his own special interests. How would you answer? How would you answer? Now, the reason why I bring this question to you is this, this, this statement was made by a professor, a theological professor at a school in Germany many, many, many years ago. 
And that should tell you right then, right now, that should send a message to you that, my goodness, even in the church, we have false teaching. Someone also said this about the book of Acts. The historical value of the narrative in Acts shrinks until it reaches a vanishing point. How about that? Are you shocked? Are you at least bit concerned by that? And someone else has said, and I'm referring to religious leaders within so-called Christianity. And finally, this statement. That the book of Acts was probably written by an unknown heathen Christian. Years and years and years after the first century. What do you think of that? Does that bother you? You see why I'm putting those two questions together? Because it's very, very important for you and I to be able to detect false teaching. But number two, it's very important for you and I to be able to answer questions like this. Or concerns or statements like this. We need to answer them. Because if we can't answer them. Then it affects our own confidence. We walk away from that saying. I, I don't, maybe he has a point. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. So let's do this real quickly. Take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 11. And we're going to read a few passages of Scripture. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not concerned about the stories in, that are intermingled in this travel log. But you're going to get a little bit of a travel log this morning. You're going to look at some cities and some towns and, and a couple of events or two. And you're going to probably ask the question, why on earth are we making trivial observations about the travel of, uh, of uh, people in the book of Acts. Well, I'll tell you why we're doing it. We're doing it because there's a ton of that information in here. And number two, if God put it in there, then it's got to be important. Amen? If God put it in there, it's got to be important. So in Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 10, I want you to read this with me. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord." Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And in verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, who is Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people... And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. I never gave Antioch much of a thought when I was a kid. It wasn't until I went to Bible college and seminary 
that I realized that Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Next to Rome itself, then the city of Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch, hundreds of miles north of Jerusalem, near, up by Asia Minor, was the third largest city of the Roman Empire. And God is getting the gospel to the people of that large city. Antioch was an interesting city. Antioch boasted that they had a, a mile-long corridor in the city of Antioch where you could shop, and it, if it rained all day, you didn't have to get any water, and you didn't have to get drenched because of the colonnaded uh, mall that went for city blocks. And Herod the king down in Judah wanted to gift the city of Antioch something, and so he, he put marble facade on a lot of the a lot of the shopping area in downtown Antioch. Antioch was the, one of the first cities of the Roman Empire that later boasted of having street lights. It was a big city, a city that desperately needed the gospel. And this is where Paul seems to settle before all of his missionary journeys. And so in chapter 13, verse 1, read these words with me. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas is one of them with others. And in verse 2, they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. And now you're going to read about the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. We're not going to look at the details. We're just going to mention to you that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas head off into Asia Minor, or they head off to Cyprus first, and from Cyprus they go through Cyprus, and then up to the coast and head off into the hinterland of Asia Minor, where they share the gospel with several cities there. Now, if I were to give you details along the way, the one thing that stands out in practically every place Paul goes to is the fact that he preaches the resurrection of Christ. And he doesn't fail to do that here. In fact, there are three references to the resurrection of Christ in Acts chapter 13 in reference to the first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 30, God raised him from the dead... For 34, he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. And verse 37, he whom God raised up saw no corruption when they are introducing Christ. There's actually another reference, but I don't have it marked. And after they go through cities in Asia Minor, they head back to the city of Antioch. And so let's pick it up at verse 26 of chapter 14. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. And now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. They make a trip to Jerusalem. They head back to Antioch. Silas goes back with them. Barnabas and Paul are back in Antioch in verse 35 of chapter 15. 
And they're getting ready for their second missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now, verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Paul chose Silas on this particular journey, and the Bible says that they were commended by the brethren to the grace of God in verse 40. And what did they do in verse 41? They went through Syria and Cilicia doing what? Strengthening the churches. So on the second missionary journey, the apostle Paul, instead of taking Barnabas with him, he takes Silas this time, and they go back through Asia Minor and into the and back to the churches that were established on the first missionary journey. If there's one thing that you and I need to get from all of this travel log, and there are many, many names, all the cities are listed. And hundreds of details are listed. And that's important. The one thing should be that we are encouraged by what we see. Now, <clears throat> there are many times when Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Silas and Paul or other companions get into trouble. There are one, two, three, four, five times that we have a reference to that in the first missionary journey. And we're going to have several in the second missionary journey as well. But running into problems and running into difficulties is no sign of whether you're doing the right thing or not, right? It is not. And so the Apostle Paul goes through his second missionary. He goes through Asia with Silas. And they work their way through Asia. And they finally find themselves on the coast of Asia Minor, on the western side of the coast at a at a city called Troas, and in verse in chapter sixteen, verse one, uh, verse eight, here's the reference to that. So, passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, and I love this, and I will share this with you forever and ever every time we read it, because you and I are probably sitting here because of what happened next. In all likelihood, you and I have the gospel today because of the vision that appeared to Paul in the night in verse 9, where there was a man of Macedonia across the Aegean Sea, a man of Macedonia. Macedonia is across the Aegean Sea in Europe now. They're still in Asia. And he hears this man begging, come over. To Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision immediately. We sought to go to Macedonia. To con and concluding that the Lord had called us. To preach the gospel to them. How many noticed a change. In the record that we have of this travel log. When we get to verse 10. Up to verse 10. And through the first and second missionary journey, we have everything written out. They did this. They did that. They did this. They did that. But when we get to chapter 16, verse 10, 
after he had seen the vision, immediately it doesn't say, they sought to go to Macedonia, we sought to go to Macedonia. And now for the very first time, you have the very author of the book of Acts showing up. Paul met Luke in the city of Troas. Paul is taking Luke with him on his missionary journey with Silas. They're headed across the Aegean Sea, and they're headed to the coastline of Europe. And because Europe got the gospel, we have the gospel. Now, if we were to go through this missionary journey, you and I would discover in verse 11, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city on that part, in that part of Macedonia, a colony. And I look at this, and let me just break in here at this point, because it's more the conclusion that I want to make at the end. But let me break in here and say to, to you that this Luke, who is writing the book of Acts, is surely a man of detail. And the big question is going to be whether his details are right or whether his details are wrong. And I can tell you that I have counted almost 500 details in Acts where Luke is right. He's right about cities. He's right about where they're located. He's right about people. He is right about who they are. He is right about events. He gets it right all the time. And I think that's one of the reasons why these details are so important. God knew that Acts was going to be challenged more than any other book in the Bible for its historical accuracy. And I think God said, you know what? I'm going to make sure it's authored by a guy who knows the facts about everything. Who is meticulous in his method of research. Who if he doesn't talk about things from his personal experience. Because now we're getting his personal experience. He is going to talk about things because he's talking to eyewitnesses. And he's researching everything so well. Probably himself knowing that he is going to be attacked. Vehemently. And why wouldn't the devil want the book of Acts attacked? It is the record of the growth of the church from Jerusalem to Rome. Why wouldn't he? And so they go to Philippi, and you, you hear about we, we, we. Philippi was a really great city. Uh, Paul was in prison there, of course. Unfortunately, the Philippian jailer got saved. They go to Thessalonica. All of that detailed information is here. All of, the, all of the detailed information about Roman society is there that has any reference whatsoever to do with the apostle uh, Paul and Luke and Silas in their journey. And when they go through the second missionary journey, uh, the Bible tells us that Luke apparently stays in the city of Philippi and Silas and and, and Paul go back to Antioch. 
And so in verse 20 of chapter 18, just to pick it up so that we don't have, so, so it's one kind of neat little, little compendium here. When, when he was at the city of Corinth and stopped over at the city of Ephesus, they asked him to stay there a little bit longer. But Paul said, I can't. I got to leave. I got I to be in Jerusalem. And so he sailed from Ephesus at the end of verse 21 of chapter 18. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, doing what? Again, strengthening the brethren. Which Luke tells us time after time they do. The end of the second missionary journey is in those verses. And the beginning of the third missionary journey is in those verses. And to make a long story short, if you would read the travel log and you'd read all the information, you would see that the Apostle Paul and Silas go back out on their missionary journey, the third missionary journey, and they go through the cities of, of, uh, of Europe that they were in before. And when they get back on their return to Antioch, this time they pick up Luke again in the city of Philippi. And in chapter 20, after the Apostle Paul had decided to go from um, um, Egypt, uh, not Egypt, but if Ephesus um, to Macedonia, the Bible says in verse 2 that when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words. Paul is all about encouraging people and strengthening them in their faith. He came to Greece and stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And now he has a bigger group of people with him. He has... Several people, if you'll read those names, Sopater, Aristarchus, Sanducus, Timothy, Gaius, Tychicus, Trophimus. All of these people are with him. And then notice verse 5. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. Luke starts again with his personal experience on the last part of the third missionary journey. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. You know, his information is so correct in every, practically every detail that when he mentions how long it takes to get from one place to another, he is exactly right. And that's what you call trivia, information. And so the Bible tells us, and to make a long story short, because I'm going to wrap it up now. But what happens then is Luke goes to Jerusalem with the Apostle Paul. When Paul gets to Jerusalem, the Bible tells us that he is arrested. He is tried. He is imprisoned for two years. And then Luke is there with him. During those two-year period, he isn't always right there. He isn't sitting outside the jail in Caesarea. But he's in constant contact with the apostle Paul. 
And then when it goes time, it's time for him to go to Paul to go to Rome, the Bible says that Luke takes that journey with the Apostle Paul to Rome. And he's with Paul on the Roman trip. And he also stays with Paul the two years that he is imprisoned in Rome in his hired house. Now, I say that to you. Chapter 21, by the way, is really exciting. Chapter 21 talks about um, the journey to Jerusalem. And Luke must refer to himself a couple of dozen times in that, in that chapter. And then chapter 27 is exciting because it's the voyage that Paul makes to Rome. And Luke must refer to himself a couple of dozen times in that passage of Scripture as well. But so let me wrap this up with a couple of thoughts that you and I need to keep in mind, all right? And, and the first one is a kind of a question. So if Luke has been criticized for being disingenuous, for intentionally deceiving and deviating from historical truth, how do we know that Luke is telling the truth? In the first place. Well, we already have the answer, don't we? I kind of gave it away there. His personal experience is part of his research method. I'm going to tell what I saw. I'm going to share what I personally know. And then imagine for two years in, the, in Judea, because he's not from Judea. He is the only one who is a Gentile who wrote any of the Gospels. He wrote the Gospel of Luke first, and then he wrote the book of Acts. And he's just as severely criticized for the Gospel of Luke as he was criticized for the book of Acts. Two years while he was in Judea with Paul in prison over at Caesarea on the coast, he talked to as many eyewitnesses as he could. He researched as much information as he could. And then for two years in Rome, he did the same thing. And the interesting thing is that he cared about what he was writing. He cared deeply about details. He cared deeply about giving you and me the right information. I, it's amazing. You, you know, if you analyze my sermons, you'll come up with some details that are off now and then. You will. You know, I, I don't get everything just right as far as historical details are concerned. Or I may make a, a misquote or something like that. It's not that I intentionally do that. But my research method is nearly as good as Luke's was. And he knew what he was talking about, and that's the key here. He knows what he is talking about. He knows it deeply from a personal perspective. He knows it deeply from the research that he's done. And he gives us his research procedure in Luke in the first four verses of that book. And then all we have to do is match that information up with the reliability of the information that he gives to us about the persons and the places and the events in Acts to know that he's an honest man and he's telling us the facts. He's telling us the truth. 
Sir William Ramsey, many years ago, was a student of the professor who made the statement that the information in Acts can only be looked upon as intentional deviations from historical truth. He was a student at that theological school. He didn't know what to do with that. He believed it at first. And then he said, there's something wrong with this. And so Sir William Ramsey headed off to Asia Minor. And Sir William Ramsey spent a big part of his life looking for evidence of the truth. He looked at it from all, all, all the information he could find anywhere. Archaeological uh, written information, he, he researched it very, 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 very carefully. And he came to this conclusion, and I want to quote him. Criticism for a time examined the work attributed to Luke like a corpse, and the laborious autopsy was fruitless. Nothing in the whole history of literary criticism has been so waste and dreary as great part of the modern critical study of Luke. Because Ramsey said, he knows what he's talking about. And I can prove it. I can prove it. You know, a great study would be to go through the book of Acts. I'd be willing to do this with anybody who wants to do this. Go through the book of Acts and mark down all of, the, all of the historical details in the book of Acts that aren't necessarily related to the resurrection. You, you know that's why the attack is there, right? People don't want to believe in the resurrection of Christ. They don't want to believe in the gospel. And so in order to do that, what do you do? What's the very first thing you do when you want to uh, destroy uh, what somebody says? You destroy their credibility, right? It's all in any course on logic you're going to get anywhere. First thing you can do that's going to be the most valuable thing you can do is destroy a person's credibility. Give the impression he doesn't know what he's talking about. But Ramsey came to know Christ. Obviously, he came to the conclusion that he was wrong. Now, listen. If I were to close this out and I were to ask those four questions we ask you all the time, because I... I I want you, you and I need to have the confidence to know that what we're sharing from God's word is true. And we, never, we should never be able to, we should never have to walk away from a conversation asking ourselves the question, I wonder if she's right, or I wonder if he's right. I'm wondering if what I've been told is, is true or not. We should never have to do that. Ever have to do that. But if I were to run those four questions through our study this morning... You know, is there, is, there a, uh, is there a problem for me to endure? Um, I would say that it didn't make any difference what the Apostle Paul, where he went. There was always somebody there to challenge him. Always somebody there to cause problems for him. Always somebody there. And more often than not, you have more riots that were started in the book of Acts than in the, probably the whole Bible over the gospel 
and the Apostle Paul. And there's something else you need to keep in mind, too. Um, half of those riots were started over the love of money and had nothing to do with the gospel at all. The second thing I would say, is there an attitude to change? Yes. Don't take seriously those who mess with Scripture. Don't take them seriously. Charles Spurgeon said one time, he was asked the question, do, do I need to defend the Bible? He said, defend the Bible? He said, I would as soon defend a lion. He was big on using the Bible. Now, we do have to explain ourselves, right? We do have to talk about evidence and stuff like that. But listen, don't take seriously those who mess with Scripture. Number three, is there a truth for me to believe? Yes, there is. Hang on to the resurrection as if your very life depends upon it. Now, we didn't read. I wanted to stop and I wanted to read references to, to the resurrection of Christ constantly. But hang on to the resurrection of Christ as if your very life depends upon it, because it does. And last of all, is there a command for me to follow or an example for me to follow? And the answer is, make it your aim to strengthen others in their faith. Don't be a part of the problem of tearing, and tearing it down. Make it your aim to strengthen others. It's the constant example of the Apostle Paul, either strengthening the churches or encouraging the churches. And if you encourage the churches and strengthen the churches, you can't do it unless your own confidence is intact about what you know and about what you read. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that it will be an encouragement to us as we see the progress of the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. Father, thank you for Luke. Thank you for giving us a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful disciple and the writings that he gave to the church through the inspiration of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.